how do you make the spiritual path your own? Another way to say that is what is progress on the spiritual path? How do you stick with the spiritual path? What's realistic? What isn't realistic? Um, I have observed over many years that... Uh, let me just let me, let me find a different way to say this. Give me a moment here. You know, when I first uh, read that Master said... In meditation, you can have for yourself a portable paradise. That was a phrase that for some reason stuck in my mind. I can remember when I heard that. I was probably 19 or 20 years old. I can sort of remember where I was living. And for some reason in my mind, and don't ask me why, I decided it would take me about five years to develop a portable paradise. It was just like a random number. God knows where I got it. And it was just there in my head that if I meditated for five years, then I would sort of have access to this inner world. Um, Suffice to say, it didn't happen. But it was sort of like it, it symbolized to me as I sort of spent more time on the spiritual path how often we make up things without them ever actually having an origin point. That we get a little bit of information and then we fill it in with a fragment here and a fragment there, and then somehow it's just some sort of subconscious habitual thing will just rise up and then we'll just decide that something is true. And if we're fortunate on the spiritual path, part of what happens is that all those false ideas get dismantled. But sometimes what happens is we become so fixed on those ideas that they actually begin to define reality for us. Um, When we talk a lot about attunement and the importance of attunement. One of the, the points that we're trying to make is that we really want to be receiving our ideas from the right source. You know, Master says in Autobiography of a Yogi that thoughts are, not, thoughts are universal. They're not individually rooted. They're merely levels of consciousness that we attune to. And that's his really an extraordinarily interesting thought because because our thoughts, it's an interesting thought because our thoughts tend to feel, once they're inside our head, they feel like they originate with us. And we d- don't understand how, how mutable our, our whole nature is. You know, um, the physicists and the scientists are beginning to find objective proof of what the yogis have been saying for a long time, that we're just fields of energy. I was remembering this story uh, that Swami told us about. There was a, a yogi named Dirananda who was a boyhood friend of Master's, and Master invited him over to America, and for a long time he was Master's like sort of lieutenant, second in command. In the end, Dirananda turned against Master, he even sued him, and Dirananda went off and became a professor at some university in the middle of the country. And because of his Indian and his yogic background, he began to study the brain. And he was now Dr. Somebody, I don't know what his, his, his name was before, he had his monastic name. And he became a very famous researcher for the nature of the brain. So he came over to uh, India and he wanted to do experiments on brain waves. And just what, what, how, and so he was wanting to get yogis. He wanted to experiment with yogis. So Swami Purushottamananda is a very well known yogi 
who lived uh, at Vasishtha Guha in the, outside of Rishikesh. He was a disciple of Ramakrishna, I believe, or either direct or through a disciple. So, uh, Dirananda, as Dr. So-and-so, has brought all his brain measurement equipment over, and he contacts the Swami and said, We'd like to, I'd like to bring my team out to measure your, you know, to have you meditate, and we'll measure. And he said, we'd like to come on Wednesday. The Swami said, Wednesday is not a good day. And the uh, Dirananda said, well, Wednesday's the day we have. So Swami said, yes. So they come on Wednesday. There's terrible storms and floods. Nothing really works at all. They can't do anything they're supposed to do. And then they come on Thursday, which is the day the Swami had suggested. So they come and they get the Swami all set up like this. And then they can't, the machines register nothing. And they think the machines are broken and they struggle with it and they just can't figure out what's going on. And then finally the Swami looks up at them and he says, Oh, he said, you want brain waves. And then all of a sudden, all these random brain waves are registering. The machines are just again behaving in a crazy manner because the Swami is projecting brain waves. <laughs> and uh, then it all stops again. And the Swami just looks at them and he says, You people are just children, is what he says like this. You know, so there, there's this other complete understanding of who and what we are that the yogis and the masters have under their control. When Yogananda came to America, he had to make an impact. You know, no one knew what he was bringing, and he had to make an impact. And he had, uh, he actually did a lot of miraculous things in in his public lectures. He would uh, have heartbeats, he would have doctors come up, I think I was saying this in this room, and he would have different pulses and different arms, he would stop his breath, he would do feats of strength, he would balance on the edges of two chairs and then have people try to knock him off and be unable to knock him off. And as a consequence, thousands of people came to see him. I mean, they were sort of tricks, but not really. He was just showing them that we have a potential that we don't really know. And part of that potential is the simple fact that we are not as limited as we think we are. We just feel, we, we move through life in this very um, very narrow sense of who we are. And it's, it's, it's easy to speak about, but it's very, very difficult to, to break that. So when Master makes that simple statement that even our thoughts do not really originate with us. All that we're ever doing is just attuning ourselves to these different levels of reality. And whatever level you attune to, then all these thoughts flood in that support whatever that level of reality is. If you've ever been with someone who was sad or even depressed, you know, you can be in exactly the same circumstances and they'll draw nothing but reasons to feel sad and someone else will draw all these reasons to feel happy. And if someone is determined to be sad, then they'll just keep finding reasons why they're going to be that way. And no amount of uh, external uh, reasoning with them will really change it. But the, the fact of that means that we have to be very, very careful about what we're attuning to. And this is why on the spiritual path, attunement to the guru, attunement to this particular ray of grace, is considered to be such a, an important um, essential on the path. And this is why we, we tend to encourage as much as possible that once you've started down a certain spiritual path, that you feed yourself only things that are in tune with that vibration. And of course, there's all kinds of choices of things that we can read and that we can do. 
And many things people find if they read from this angle or read from that angle or so on, they'll, they'll get some sort of support for it, for their understanding. But there's a much more subtle, uh, just sort of quality that we're looking for, which is to just be on the, the ray of what we're really trying to do so that all the inspiration that comes to us takes us down the path we're trying to walk. There's a story that uh, Diana uh, Diana gave to me, um, and it's printed in uh, Swami Kriyananda's We've Known Him, which is the book I wrote about Swami before this one. And in that, Diana had just started um, studying spiritual teaching, and she was living actually in Palo Alto, the area that I live in now, but I don't think I was there at the time. And she had begun to study Reiki healing, which is something that a lot of people do. And Reiki healing has certain things to offer. If you get deep into Reiki, it begins to contradict a few points of Master's teachings. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just has its own way. So Diana was extremely enthusiastic about Reiki. And she had barely met Swami and was barely starting on the path. And she was talking to him about how great it was. And Swami just turned to her and he said, oh, if it's that beneficial, then I should study it, like that. And Diana instinctively somehow knew that that wasn't really the right answer and said to Swamiji, oh, no, why would you need Reiki? Just like that. That was the end of the conversation. Nothing else happened. Diana said ten years later, when she had gotten much more deeply onto this path, that conversation, and she had stopped studying Reiki, she just lost interest in it, that conversation came back to her And she started asking herself, what was it that she responded to? Why was it that she immediately felt that he didn't need it, but she did? And she began to realize, and she began to realize the reason she needed it is because, well, let me make it this way, that Swamiji was drawing from Master everything he needed. And so it was obvious to her that he didn't need to add anything to that because everything he needed was coming directly to him from Master. And Diana said... And she wasn't. (laughs) It was as simple as that. She wasn't drawing everything she needed from Master, and therefore she was restless to find other ways to nurture herself. Now, I'm not trying to make a dogmatic story here, but I'm trying to talk about some of the choices that we make that either um, strengthen and inspire our spiritual path or gradually dilute it. Because many people start out with a great deal of energy, and many fewer of them make it to the finish line. It's in the uh, Gita, out of a thousand, one seeks God, and out of a thousand who seek God, one finds God. Um, the, they made up, somebody made up some t-shirts that people wore that said, I'll be the one in a thousand. <laughs> it was kind of an esoteric you know, t-shirt, but people who understood it really understood it. Master's response actually is very encouraging. He said, our percentage is higher. <laughs> he didn't say how much higher, but maybe you'll be two in a thousand or whatever it's going to be. But the the m- most important thing on the spiritual path is not how enthusiastically you start, but how enthusiastically you finish. And there's there's many things that I have observed over time. Now I've been with Ananda since 1971, and there's a there's a quality to Ananda that I've actually seen everywhere. It was especially true when we were one small community and I could watch it come together, is that there's a lot of people who move in and out because 
you know, this is a very powerful and attractive path and people get interested in it. But you, not everyone has, as Swami Kriyananda put it, not everyone has lifelong spiritual karma. You know, many people just have some. And we become enthusiastic for a while and then it kind of like the fuel burns out. And, and that's, that's a natural progression. And sometimes the fuel burns out because we don't add more fuel to it. So over the years I've watched it in Nanda, there would be an outer circle, and then people would sort of gradually um, move in. And the outer circle would shift a great deal, but once there was a certain level of commitment, it, it was just impossible to go away. It was very much, as I was talking in one of the classes here, at the end of the life of Jesus, when many disciples were leaving because it was so confusing. And he asked Peter, uh, his, his primary disciple, the one the Catholics claimed to be the first pope. I, I have to laugh because really, I mean, being a pope was so far from Peter's mind. It's just like <laughs> ludicrous. It would be the last thing he was ever thinking about. But uh, Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter answered, where would I go? So th there comes a point where the unity between oneself and one's spiritual path, the unity between oneself and one's guru, is, it, it, it's the same as, you know, it's just there's just simply no way to separate it. So you can't think, how could I leave? Because where could I go? If, as long as I exist, I exist as your disciple. And that is the reality of it. It's beyond all rational reasons or anything like that. Um, just a moment now, where was I in all of this? Mm -hmm. <coughs> where was I? What was I saying? Um, uh, this is a test. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes, the circle, that's what I was talking about. But, but I always noticed that over the years, very few people from there departed. But the ones who did always, and the only way I can describe it is they always played the edges. You know, there were always, there were sort of attitudes that weren't quite in keeping with the spiritual thinking, but they thought they could keep them. You know, I could, they could be a little angry, they could be a little snide, they could be a little, uh, one friend of mine who actually was and still is, even though he won't talk to me anymore, he, uh, he was one of my dearest and best friends for like 20 years. But uh, whenever he was mad at me, I discovered that he kept a list of all the reasons why I had mistreated him. I mean, I was astonished. They would go all the way back. He remembered them all. And no matter how many times I would say, yes, I was an idiot, I'm sorry, it would just stay on the list. you know. And so there was just this determination not to admit that he was ever at fault, but that it was always someone else's fault. And eventually, literally, it just blew him off the path. You know, there was another, uh, another man I knew who just... I mean, the only thing I can think of is uh, he, he, he played around with worldliness. He just... He, he, he tried to be a renunciate, but... And I don't mean he had worldly attitudes, like he liked nice clothes or nice restaurants. But he admired worldly things. He admired worldly power. He, he admired popular people. He, you know, he just... He was enamored of that sort of thing. And I remember once I said, I had this 
conversation with this man, just casually. I was so naive at that point. And I don't know why I said it, but I said something like, um, Swami, the, I said to him, the, the, the man, I said, you know, there's just nothing in this world that really interests me. I was living way up in the forest, and, and it was true. Not that I didn't have lots of desires, because I do and did, but it was just sort of like the world, per se, didn't interest me. And he looked at me and says, oh, there's lots of things that interest me, just like that, which shocked me. I was so naive, it shocked me. So when I saw Swamiji, I said, you know, I told him this conversation, and very seriously said, yes, he said, there's lots of things that interest him. And eventually that infatuation, I'm trying to say this in the right way, because it wasn't like career ambition or something like that. He was infatuated with worldly power. He was infatuated with fame. He was infatuated uh, with with the adulation that would come. It was it was a an egoic rather than a material thing, if you can understand. And it just drew him right off the path. So what uh, one of what I'm really trying to talk about here is, you know, we really have to take this seriously. If we if we really want to be standing on the path at the end of our lives and. I've I've heard it said, I mean, Master himself said it, those who are faithful to the end, meaning the end of life, he said, at that, at, you know, then, then I or one of the other Masters will come and take them across the divide between this life and the next. But what's so fascinating about that remark is he didn't say those who triumph and never miss a meditation. He just said those who are, who are faithful to the end. And, and there's a particular quality about that statement that's always attracted me. Because that's really what counts. God, Swami often said, God reads the heart. You know, it's, it's who we are inside ourselves. And it, often it's very difficult to express yourself. When this one woman in our community passed away, Swami remarked about her, and he had the perception to know. He said... Uh, she only revealed a very small part of who she was. He said most of her was hidden from, from most people's view. And, and her sister said afterwards, how did Swami know that? You know, cause it, but he just knew, he could tell. So you can't always tell what's showing. There was another woman, Paula, who was a, a devotee in our community. And I think in the, in the Swami Kriyananda book, I wrote about her passing. Oh, it's in the Finding Happiness movie. That's where many of you may have seen me tell the story of her passing, which was one of the earlier um, uh, deaths in our community. Plus, it, she just died magnificently. She died so consciously, so bravely, um, and just with so much energy. Swami said afterwards, you know, you have to be a highly advanced soul to be able to, to call the moment of your death in the way that she did and to do it so forcefully like this. But she was, well, actually someone said, you know, if you didn't really know, you wouldn't be sure she was playing with a full deck, is how someone put it, because she was extremely childlike, just extremely childlike, and just very, very sweet, but she... And, and she could accomplish a great deal, but she always did it in this sort of little child's way. She was a small woman. She had a little voice. It's just like you wouldn't think magnificent lion-like yogi when you thought about her. She also had a, a, a passion for clothes. And actually, after she died, all of her clothes and jewelry were passed out to all of us. And 
it just kept passing out. There was just more and more of it, you know. Her husband kept finding secret stashes of things that she had. And truthfully, she was nearly bankrupt when she died for various reasons not exactly related to her affection for clothes. But, I mean, so, like, who was she? But she loved God with everything that she had in her heart. And she was just pure, just completely pure. And she never played the edges. You know, it was just the way it was. There's a story about her that I don't think I told in the movie. I probably didn't have time. Um, she used to be the buyer for this uh, retail store that we had, which was actually a woman's clothing store. Very successful because of her buying. <laughs> and so she, and she, went, she had a business partner, a woman who was a businesswoman, and they would go to the fashion shows. And Paula would just sail through and just pick out intuitively what she knew would work. Intuitively, she knew how many to buy. She just completely, she did it without notes, without any left, without any left brain interference. And she would just sail through and then uh, the business lady behind her would come through and, you know, make everything work. And she was always right. I mean, she clothed me. I'd go in her store. I bought these for you and then she'd give me, you know, the best looking things I ever had. Because she just knew. She knew us all. So it, uh, one of those shows, she had a bronchial condition. And she was coughing a lot, and it was a bit of a problem. So she actually had some codeine cough medicine. And being a rather unsystematic person, she was just sipping it. And she wasn't paying any attention. Yeah, she was just sipping it, not paying any attention. And she overdosed. So she's alone in a hotel room, and she realizes she's overdosed on this narcotic, which is not a joke. And she actually begins to feel that she's dying. And she sort of crawls into the bath. She couldn't deal with the phone or anything like that. She crawls into the bathroom, thinking it, she, she's sort of on the floor. She turns the bathtub on, splashes water on her face. Then she's actually leaning over, and this is how she, but the lid of the toilet is up. She's staring into the toilet bowl, and she says, Divine Mother, am I going to die looking into a toilet bowl? <laughs> it was just like, really? <laughs> Even in the moment, she had enough to think, this is not how I pictured it. <laughs> but then she said she saw the tunnel of light, and, and she just started going up the tunnel of light, and she was, she was heading out. And then she remembered this outfit that she'd put on layaway, right, that she was supposed to pick up the next day. When she thought of the outfit, she came right back into her body. <laughs> she said like that. <laughs> Later, I said, did you buy it? I wonder if she bought it because it saved her life. I thought she might go buy it, but she said, absolutely not. There was no way she was going to buy that. You know, it, it was her, well, those of you who heard me talk on Sunday, I was talking about the desire that you have that pulls you away. I mean, she was going into the light, and this, the concept of this outfit actually attracted her attention. You know, it's just so, we just don't know. But when it came time for her to die, there was nothing, absolutely nothing that held the record. Like, just for fun. There was, there was a whole group of us there, and one friend of hers, Paula had this relationship with coffee because she had had, this was the third time she'd had cancer, and everybody kept thinking that she could be cured by diet, which was not true. This was her destiny. So they were always trying to get her to stop drinking coffee, and she never wanted to stop drinking coffee. I mean, this is the way she was. She was just like, oh, come on, I'm not going to mess with the small stuff. So, so she's in the last, literally the last hours of her life, and she's trying to finish everything. And so someone said, would you like a coffee? 
And he, she started to tell him how she wanted it, and he knew. He said, I know just what you like. So he comes back with this from wherever you go to get coffee like this, just the way she likes it. She couldn't even swallow. So she had a swab that she would stick into the swab, and then she would swab her mouth with the taste of the coffee. And, you know, hours are passing. She's still holding this coffee cup. At one point, she starts to drift off. Someone tries to take it from her hand. She wakes up. She closes her hand around it. She says, I'm not finished with it yet, like that. And then, you know, another hour, she takes a little bit more. Then she says, take it away like this. You know, just she just finished everything. And then she gathered us around. She, she had the supplement. We were in the hospital. She was in the hospital. But the hospital just let us do what we wanted. She had the oxygen in her nose. And she did a little ceremony with whispers from eternity. And then we, we all went to sleep. It was like midnight or something. That were just all over the floor. And I look up and she pulls it out. She didn't say anything at all. She just took it out. And I thought, oh my goodness, look at that. You know, she, was just, she knew it was over. She pulls it out. A short time later, we sort of all woke up. She's trying to pass. This is I put into the movies. I don't have to tell you all of it. But she just, she was sort of, we could feel she was trying to leave. And then she said, this is very, just like a little child, this is very hard. She said, you have to help me. And Jyotish was there and he started us all chanting Om. And then she said, God, Christ, Guru. And just very shortly after that she stopped breathing. I mean... Oh my gosh, you know? And if you had watched her and looked at her, you would never have known who she was. She was incredibly sweet and, you know, just adorable and loving. But you would never have known who she was. But it's who we are on the inside that really makes the difference. You know, we're given all kinds of strange roles in this world. We just don't know. We don't know why we have, we are who we are. We like to think that we have some control over this, but the longer I live, the more just mysterious the whole thing is. And the only part of it that we really have is this sort of inner reality, this inner sweetness, this inner possibility of goodness that that is what we really have to keep because the roles are sometimes very complicated and not so easy to figure out. Um, you know, the question that was asked me was about my own ups and downs. You know, it's, I've not tried to play the edges exactly because I've watched too many other people do that. But all of us imagine that we can get away with a little more than God is going to let us get away with. That's the only way I can think about it. You know, Sister Gyanamata says that she gradually realized that God wanted everything from her. She said, even those things, and I love the way she put it, that harmed no one, that were mine by right. You know, she said, God just wanted to take it all away from her. So there's a process that just happens in the spiritual path, and no one can predict it, and no one can tell you exactly what it is. It's not like you have to have all the people you love die, or you have to go bankrupt, or you have to lose your home, or you have to be disappointed. There's just absolutely no telling what it really is going to look like. What it, it's all just a question of, where is my heart? What am I holding to? What do I love? What is really of value to me? But the other part of what God reading the heart is, is, is this, I mean, the simple word is humility. 
But also, we also have to have the humility to just be who we are. I spent a lot of time in my early years with Swamiji just somehow trying to pretend I was someone else. I don't know how else to put it. It's just like I, I kept trying to make my spirituality from the outside. It's just like this is what a spiritual person would be like, so this is what I'm going to be like. These are my attitudes. These are my words. This is how I behave. This is what I want. And I gradually realized that it was, first of all, it was exhausting. And the second thing is it it kind of cuts you off from your real power because the only real power we have is who we actually are. And all of these desires and inclinations and affections and attachments, all of these are actually not separate from our spiritual life. We have this idea, I mean, contrary to what some of the things I was just saying, that we have to cut them all off. And, you know, now that I've been in India for a few weeks, I've seen that there's one consistent question. Nobody asked it tonight because you didn't ask it yet. But some of you would have, I'm sure. Which is, here I am, a householder with all these responsibilities. You know, it must be easier for you, me, Asha, because you're not like me. I mean, we just have this imaginary idea that there's, <laughs> that there's an easier path than the one I'm on. And that, it, that it, mine is extra difficult because of whatever I have. And then you just fill in the blanks. And that one looks better. So we sort of try to follow that one. Whereas, in fact, we just are... I was talking about this yesterday, I think, and just sort of trying to say this, coming back to the fact that we're just energy and vibrations. Now, these are very subtle thoughts, but the clearer we can grasp these really subtle thoughts, the easier everything becomes. It's like we are nothing, we are nothing but a certain vibration of consciousness. And because we are that vibration of consciousness, everything manifests in harmony with that vibration. Um, this is just contrary, but this woman I knew, um, she was very small, smaller than me, and, and just uh, puny in lots of ways. And she always bought really big cars, like trucks, you know, or big Jeeps or something like that, you know, so that she could look like she could hardly step into it. And I just said to her once when we were banging along in her big four-wheel drive, something or another, I said, haven't you ever felt that this car is a little incongruous for who you are? And she says, this is what I feel like inside. She said like that, you know. It's like she felt like a strong, powerful person. I, she actually finally said she felt she had been a big, strong man for many incarnations and had basically come to rely so much on that physical force that she was trying to balance by, you know, being this puny little woman, but she couldn't quite, she couldn't quite lose the image in her own mind. You know, that's just who she was. But in any case, and actually, I became I became interested once. I traveled in India once on one of our pilgrimages, and there were like f- about five really big men on that trip, and they were all they were all actually builders, as it happened, which. As a, as a tour leader to India a dozen times or so, I saw the Taj Mahal many times because, of course, we all had to go to the Taj Mahal. The most interesting trip was when I was with those builders because I walked around with them and they looked at the Taj Mahal from the point of view who, of how it was built. And it was a totally fascinating, completely different perspective than I'd ever had. One more ridiculous story from the Taj Mahal has nothing to do with anything. I was there once with uh, Brian Powers and... 
we were there and there was like, we looked up and there were some vultures circling above. And Brian, who's very much of a jokester, began to cough and stagger. And then he fell to the ground. And I'll be darned if those vultures didn't come down from the sky and land right next to him. <laughs> so I guess they're always watching, you know, for someone to fall over. Okay, moving right along. I was with these men and I just, the fact, because I'm a small female and they were just big males. And I was just sort of talking about how, what it would be like. Finally, one of them said to me, Asha, it's the right size body for my consciousness, is how he put it. But it was his vibration. It was his vibration to be male, to be, to be large, to be strong, to have that kind of energy. And so we're all some certain vibration, and that vibration is in our chakras, and then we manifest a reality that exactly matches us. And so we're not really householders or monks or men or women or large or small, any of that. We are a certain vibration. And we literally materialize our vibration around us. And so what we have to work with is we have to work from the inside out to really refine our vibration. Not, we don't even necessarily mean to change it, but we just need to keep refining it to just become a better and better version of who I actually am, given whatever starting point I am. And the more at peace we are with whatever starting point we have, you know, whether it's strong and healthy, whether it's, whether it's sickly, whether it's wealthy, whether it's poor, whether we have good luck or bad luck or talents or not talents, we are a certain vibration. And if we want to be something else, like perhaps closer to God, then the way we get closer to God is we begin to refine that vibration. And we just ask ourselves, what am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my life? I mean, sometimes it's very interesting to walk into your own home, for example, or your own room or wherever you live, to open your own closet and just think, if I didn't know this person, who would they be? What would I think about whoever this is? the way I keep this house or the way this house has been kept. Just like, who, who would be like this? And you can look at it backwards. Invariably, when I'm feeling uh, off, I look around. I, I live primarily in one pleasant-sized room in a larger house. You know, and I just look around and it's just confusion. Whoever lives here is really confused. <laughs> and I can just look around and see that she's really confused. And I put her, put the room back in order and is sort of getting access. And I actually looked at my house from this, this same question because there's, there's a, many of you have been there, but there's a bigger space. And I, realized, and I realized all the art in this house is spiritual. You know, almost all the art. But just like I realized that I had just, every, everything I wanted to see was a spiritual image. And that wasn't like I thought that's what I had to do or anything like that. It's just, that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see these colors. I wanted to see these forms. You know, those are ju just the questions we ask ourselves because we're nothing but vibrations. What kind of music is going on in our houses? What do we do when we're alone in the car, when we have relaxation time? Now, I read novels. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Actually, novels have been my drug of choice for much of my life. I suffered from TMN, too many novels, you know? And I actually had to start weaning myself off of novels because there was a point when I realized it really was a drug for me. It was just my way of... So I started reading biographies. I didn't stop reading because recreational reading is just part of the way I'm wired. 
but I started trying to just be a little more elevated, and gradually it's been very interesting. I've actually, to a large extent, lost my, lost my taste for novels, and only occasionally can I read them now, but it was a conscious realization. I need to shift this vibration. I haven't lost my taste for recreational reading. You know, that's just still... And Swami actually read a lot, and toward the very end of his life, he commented. He said, um, I no longer read, he said, and for someone like me, speaking of himself, who's been a bookworm all my life, he said it's really a notable shift that he just stopped reading because his consciousness just went to a place where he, he really couldn't read anymore. But you know, the, those are the questions. What are the books on my shelf? What am I doing? Because all of these things begin to add up to the vibration that we create. And of course, all of you who don't have control of your own environment because you share your home with many other people who may be very different than you, you have to find your own, your own way with all of this. But whatever we're tuned into, that's what we'll become. And if we want to become one thing, then we have to just simply begin to tune into it. And it's as simple as that. And if what also happens on our path, and the question back to way back to the question was ups and downs, is count on them. You know, just depend on them. This is where I said you, we get these ideas in our head. Five years, portable paradise, there it is. I just make it up. Spiritual person never has any problems. And I remember I was working for Swamiji as his secretary, and I was quite a, an excitable person. And when I would become excitable, I would make noise. You know, I would make words and so on. And I remember I was uh, in some central area of the community at a certain time, and I don't know what I was irate about, but I was irate about something. And someone said to me in a very pious way, you're Swami Kriyananda's secretary, you shouldn't be behaving like this. <laughs> My response was, I am Swami's secretary, and I am behaving like this. You know, I just couldn't. I had to be what I was. You know, and so that's what we have to be. I love God and this is how I behave. I'm a dedicated disciple of Master and this is what's happening to me. You know, this must be what happens to me. This must be my route to salvation because otherwise I wouldn't be going through it. And we, what we need to really develop in ourselves is just this calm acceptance that this is the path. This is not an aberration on the path. This is the path. <coughs> that I just put one foot in front of the other and every so often I step into a big hole. And some precious something or another that I thought I was going to get to keep in my pocket all the way to liberation, God found it in there and he pulled it out. You know, that sort of begins to be what it feels like after a time. Oh, guess what? You know, I didn't... Or else, I didn't know I, I, didn't know I had this in me. I mean, sometimes I feel... This was the image that I came up with lately like a tube of toothpaste. I don't know why, but it's a tube of toothpaste if you have the cap on it. And I feel like it's like this was me. I'm like a tube of toothpaste with the cap on, lying on the floor, and God went like that with his heel. So all the seams split, you know? It's just, can, you can picture it. It's a mess. It's like, wow, look at that. What a mess. I didn't know that I was capable of feeling this way. And so what two things can happen, you know, when we're exposed to ourselves. Either we become embarrassed, ashamed, guilty, um, tragic about, you know, oh, I thought I was more advanced than this. Well, I mean, I remember once with Swamiji, I, 
I had had this very difficult situation, and I thought I was free of it. But actually, all I, had, all I was on was a small recess. <laughs> and then circumstances came back together, and I was just as vulnerable as I'd ever been. And I was had been congratulating myself on my freedom. And I was literally weeping. I was just so upset because here I was, you know, and I thought I was free. And he said, well, this is actually really good news. He said, because you weren't putting out any energy to overcome this weakness because you thought you had. Now you know you haven't. I mean, that's about how seriously he took it. It wasn't like, oh, yes, you have a long way to go, you know, and just nothing. It's like, well, good news. Now you can get to work. And I mean, I wasn't able quite to go to that, but I never forgot it. So whenever God puts the cap on the toothpaste and then steps on it again and some completely unexpected uh, bit of karma comes crashing out, the, f- the first reaction, there's always the reaction, of, oh, please, really. But then the next reaction is, okay, I didn't know it was there. Why would I have wanted to keep it? And you know, that's, that's, how you, that's how you stay on the path. That's how you stay on the path, is you just remain extremely interested. You remain extremely interested in what I have left to work on, which is usually quite a lot for most of us, and how I can get through it. And then the prayer just becomes for endurance. You know, there's a, there's a lot. Endurance is just a huge part of the path, which is why Master said that for those who don't quit who just persevere to the end. My, at the age of 72, after all these years, my advice on the spiritual path is two words, don't quit. Just as simple as that. It doesn't really matter. I was saying that, that comment about masters. It doesn't really matter that much how well you do it. I've observed people who think they're doing really well, who, who burn out and go away, and the, the ones who are just sticking with it as best they can often is like the turtle in the hair, you know, they just keep plodding along. So what we, we need to develop in ourselves, and this is a sort of practice when it's easier kind of teaching, we need to constantly remind ourselves how fortunate we are to be on the spiritual path. And, and don't think of it in terms of all the doors that Master opens for you. Don't think of it in terms of all the... Uh, rough spots he smooths out. I mean, of course, we should be grateful when we feel the Master has saved us, but by no means, don't define the path by any specific that you expect Master's going to do for you or God's going to do for you because when he doesn't, you won't be able to stay on the path. So you have to just define the path. I mean, this is the way I always think about it. I always remember what it was like before I found the spiritual path. And that's the only point of contrast that really matters. It's just the point of contrast of not knowing what life is about, knowing what life is about. Not feeling that you have any... Mm, I, I used to describe myself as that I was the hockey puck in the game of life. You know, I was just being whacked from side to side. It was rather exciting. You know, lots was happening but I never knew where the next experience would come from. And I sometimes people would cheer and sometimes they would boo. And you know, I just never knew anything that was happening. And then when I understood self-realization, and much more profoundly, when I met Swamiji and really became a disciple, it's like there's a point of reference. And that just just having a point of reference, even if you can't always cling to it, because then everything that happens 
there's a, there's a fixed point to which it relates, which is I am going toward God realization and I live in relationship to that. And so we need, what we need to do is we need to train our minds continuously to always bring ourselves back. If we're complaining, if we're feeling weak, whatever, just bring ourselves back. You know, I had the very, very, very good karma to find the spiritual path. I know what the meaning of life is. Even if I struggle, even if I fail for a while, I know that. Make it as deep as you can so that when God asks you, will you also leave me, you just have to say, where could I go? And you really, really mean it. I was, there was a, uh, there is a man who helped train people for, uh, who had terminal illnesses. And he would give these seminars for people with terminal illnesses. And there were two um, lists that he would have them make. This is the list of everything I'm going to miss out on because I'm going to die before I expected to die. And everybody would make those lists together and there would be endless weeping and despair over all the things that you would miss. I'll never see my grandchildren. I won't grow old with my wife. You know, I'll never see Paris, whatever it might be. And then on this side, you make a list of all the things that you're going to get to avoid now that you're going to die early. <laughs> Which, I mean, there's quite a lot of them that you're going to, most people have that these things that one can't quite face. And there's this sort of, feeling like that. Most people would think that what you have to work with is what you're missing, but the ones you have to work with is what do you think you're going to get to avoid by dying? And I thought it was such an interesting exercise. I, I've never been diagnosed with a terminal illness, except that the years keep passing, so in that sense I'm diagnosed like all of us. But I actually, it was very interesting for me because I wanted to make, when I read this, I wanted to make that list of what I was going to get out of and I was very pleased to realize I really couldn't put anything on that list because I had have practiced the spiritual ideas so deeply that I know that I'll never get out of anything. That I mean, yes, I could die and then I would have to experience it in another body, but it's just like I will never get out of anything. Everything will have to be faced. Every weakness will have to be overcome. Every attachment will have to be transcended. Every sorrow will have to be released. Every resentment. I mean, my particular, at one point when I was, I don't know what I was struggling with, but I was struggling with something. And I gradually realized, and this was past lives, I was holding in my heart all these annoyances from God knows when, previous lives. I was expressing them to a certain extent to people in this life, but I knew that the origin point was past lives. And then finally, I finally got it down to somebody owes me an apology. <laughs> somebody needs to say, Asha, you were right, we were wrong. I thought to myself, like, what good would that do? You know, also, people are going to apologize for like 15 lifetimes ago. Like, what good is it going to do at this point? But in my heart, I was actually real, so like holding on. And it was like, you have to, you have to face this. You know, death itself is not going to release you from this wrong attitude. It's just as simple as that. There's nothing that we're going to get, get away with. I mean, those are the kind of attitudes that you have to really develop. Now, Kamala Silva, uh, who was a great disciple of Master, prayed that all her karmic debts would be paid in this lifetime. 
And in the early years of Ananda, we used to talk about that, and people would say, I've prayed that all my karma can be worked out in this lifetime. I thought to myself, the very thought of that absolutely terrifies me. I just, I mean, I couldn't even entertain it as a theory. It was just so frightening to me. And I, I mean, that I would look at people, and I actually, I never believed them. Maybe they really did, but I never believed them because I couldn't imagine it. And I, I still don't actually pray like that. But I have actually understood, of course it has to be paid. Everything has to be paid. And when you, I mean, that's the opposite of playing the edges. That's the opposite of keeping a list of everything that so-and-so ever did to you so you can keep bringing it up. It's the opposite of saying somebody owes me an apology and I'm going to remain crabby until they give it to me, even if it's incarnations that I hold on to this thought. You know, it's like everything. And, and I want to, I, even if I have to say, maybe a little more slowly and not yet. But anything that we're holding on to that we think we're going to get away with, I mean, that's what, we'll, that's what will challenge us on the spiritual path. And it gets messy. You know, it just, it just really gets messy. Our lives get messy. Our, I was talking to some friends, though, saying, oh, here's, here's one more very important point. A lot of times when people hit hard times, they stay away from the sangha. And, they'll, and they justify it with things like, oh, I don't want to bring my negativity to others. Or, you know, I'm feeling so down, you know. But what it is, is your negativity persuades you to keep with it. And so this, and the, the, the other most important thing is, when times get hard, you must cling to the family. You absolutely must cling to the family. And they want to help you. Think about it. If you knew someone else was struggling and they thought, oh, I don't want to bother you, I mean, it's not like you have to come in and announce. It's not like, I mean, it could be, but it isn't like AA meetings where you get to stand up and tell your story every week. But you just bring yourself into the positive atmosphere and your negativity will have a harder time surviving in that atmosphere. Let me just say, there's a thought here. Let me just, I, I want to catch it. It went away for a second. Um, oh, yes, but there's something really odd that I have noticed year after year. When you feel the worst, I mean, sometimes you look really sad, but a lot of times when you feel the worst is when people say, you look marvelous. <laughs> and I actually finally figured it out when it was happening to me is because I was so intent, you know, on just holding myself together that there was all this concentrated actual divine power because I was having to hold on so hard. And I've, been, I've seen people that, who have confided in me, and I know that they're having a terrible time. And I, have to, I look at them, I have to say, honestly, well, I don't know what you're feeling like, but I've never seen you look better. Because there we are. It's, we're, we're paying the debt, we're getting free, and, you know, so what is good, what is bad, what is suffering, what is freedom? You just, your mind gets completely scrambled up, and you want a single vibration. And that vibration is, God, if this is what you're giving me, this is what I want. It's fair to say I'm not enjoying it, and I wish you didn't want to give it to me. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, God never gives us more than he, we can handle, but sometimes I wish he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> Which, you know, I've had to say to myself, I, you must think that, you think, you think more highly than I think, you think more highly of me than I think of myself. But if it's given to us, and even if we, if we crash and burn on it, 
it's it's a, it's a process, you know. We'll we'll have to get over it sooner or later. And it's and I was this being you know how to make it your own. It's very idiosyncratic. Nobody, nobody's path is anything like yours. I mean, the room is so different. Every one of us looks so different. Nobody's path, and what is huge for one person is no particular issue for someone else. And, and that's this is just my karma. It's not yours, and this is just your karma. It's not mine. And we never know. And and a lot of suffering is given to us just so we'll be compassionate. I certainly know that. I you know I just it, uh, until I had some really 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 hard times for myself, I just didn't really understand. Um, I didn't understand what people were going through, and I gave them a lot of bad advice because I just didn't understand it. So God said, "Well, I think it would be nice if you had a deeper understanding." So he you know he did the toothpaste thing on me again. So that I could just feel, and then all of a sudden, oh, I see. That's what they were trying to tell me, and and then the then your heart just gets so soft, you you, know, you just become so at ease. You become at ease about yourself. You become at ease about other people. Swami had the sweetest thought. He said, whenever he would see people suffering, he said, he, he, the 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 more they were suffering, the more he would realize that when they finally found God, the contrast between that bliss would be all the greater because of the suffering they were going through. So even in the moment that they were suffering, he would see the freedom that would come to them. And it would, it would, make, him, uh, it would make him so unafraid of their suffering is the word I want to use. I've had the experience and the privilege, I would say, of being with about a dozen people when they breathe their last for one reason or another. And most of them are yogis that I was with were yogis, but not all. My father was not a yogi and a few others, a few others that weren't. Um, But because of my understanding of the spiritual path, and actually I know it sounds strange, but I love death. I think death is just so exquisite and the complete letting go of everything is so magnificent. Um, I finally realized that what my job was in many circumstances, even with yogis, because sometimes there would be other family members around, was just not to be afraid. You know, I just wasn't afraid of people dying. And it just can completely change the atmosphere to not be afraid. And that, that's what we're working with about everything. We're, we're just trying not to be afraid. And if we can offer that to others and bring that into the circumstances, I use, I use dying... And be partly because I've been at the deathbed and I've seen this happen. Master uh, Swamiji says that the, every night you should let go of all your attachments and give everything back. I've never actually been able to make that one work. I, I just can't somehow. But because I have seen people die, I, I can actually visualize my death, which is sort of the same thing. And... Uh, I mean, I'm going to be slightly amusing, but I sort of know how it's going to work because I kind of know who's going to be there assuming they don't die before me. I kind of know what, a, what the physical body begins to look like when it begins to die. I kind of know how you come in and out of awareness. I know how everybody tries to be serious, but then somebody's going to crack a joke because they're just going to. And they're going to start talking about what kind of pizza we should order because if she doesn't die before the morning, we're going to be hungry. You know, I mean, all that stuff. I mean, it's just going to, because it's, it's real life, you know. And then they're going to start telling funny stories about you and 
just all these things are going to happen. I can see the whole thing. And I can see myself being interested and then being less and less interested. And I can hear myself laughing at the good jokes and reminiscing about it and wondering about the pizza. And just getting, you know, just getting smaller and smaller and farther and farther away. And also just feeling how everything that's so important, what am I going to do with it then? You know, what what do I want to take with me? Because I've sat there, I've... One woman, Tushti, you all know her because she was here. I was privileged to be with her. I wasn't with her when she breathed her last, but I was with her for the last month. And my relationship with her, my reason for being there, was I, I, she just, just over the course of the time, she would just, she was letting go. And, and she would bring up issues. And I was, I was the one who was able to we just and none of it was big conversation, but just you know how are we going to work with this? How are we going to deal with this? Okay, she could put that down. How are we going to deal with this? I mean, there was a certain point. I don't know what the death process is, but she began to lose control of her legs because you begin to unable to. And she was so puzzled that she was losing control of her legs. I said, "Tushta, you're dying." And she said, oh, yeah, that's right, you know, just the mind is so strange. You're going to lose, your body's not going to work anymore. Because she was so accustomed, she was a magnificent yogi and an athlete, but she couldn't make her leg work, and it, just confusion, she had to shift it over. So I've seen how it, you just have to reorient yourself to another vibration. You know, because the vibration we usually have is that I want to stay here. One of my friends who, who nearly died after an operation, terrible complications, he commented that it was actually rather hard to get out of his body. He said he was, you know, he was drifting and he was happy to go, but it was complicated because all the threads of karma were still holding him. And he could see that there were just these myriad threads of karma. Of course, it wasn't his time. But that's what I was thinking too. There you are. That's what I watched with Tushti. Myriad threads of karma. And she took, she took longer to pass than anyone expected because I think she untied a lot of knots. So, you know, I think of myself. There I am. And I think of the apologies I would still like to receive. <laughs> and I, I wonder, you know, if somebody's going to come and whisper into my ear as I'm dying, I'm sorry you were right. And do I actually really need them to do that or not? You know, just all the little things. But that's the point of reference that we should have, really. I mean, any other point of reference is uh, not going to serve us. I've always been a bit extreme in the way I deal with things. I like to push it to the last. And then, even if I'm far from that point, that's still my point of reference. Because if you can solve it on the highest level, instead of just patching it then then you have then you have solid ground to stand on you know if i think that i'm going to get away with it and i'm holding on to the idea that i'm going to get away with it then it catches up with me but if i really if i'm on my deathbed every night and know that it's all going away then uh, you have a much better chance you don't have to tell anybody about this, you know. You could freak the people out, you know, in your house. But you're just lying there falling asleep. Just pretend it's the end. You know, just imagine all the things that, if you know what they are, or just imagine what they would be. And what will I, you know, when I start to go in the light, what will happen? And another nice part to think about is all the good things that you've done. I love to think about my life review. 
you know, because I know it from all the movies. I don't know it from intuition, but we've all seen the movies now. And I think about, hmm, you know, the people that I've helped, the people who've been benefited, and and there's a, you know, it's it's not an insignificant thing. All of us have helped a lot of people, and it's just it's just a wonderful thing to think about. If I remove all the egoic involvement, and you know, if it just it doesn't. I've had a very public life, but everybody has done something. Maybe they painted one beautiful picture that made somebody really happy, you know. Or I see, or sewed beautiful clothes, or made beautiful environments, whatever it might be, or took care of plants, or had a puppy that you really loved, you know. Just everything that we remember, because you see, that's also a vibration. And this is something that if we cultivate in ourselves, you don't have to do it with a death a death image, but if we just cultivate a constant remembrance of, of all that we are that gives us reasons for joy. So there's this story that Swami told about one of Master's disciples who was in the hospital and he was dying. And I think Swami went to visit him. And when he, and we came back, Master said, how was he? And Swami said, he kept saying, oh, I've done so many wrong things in my life. And Master got very, very sad because that, that was his last thought. I've done so many wrong things in my life, but we've also done so many right things in our life. You know, so what difference does it make? Who do we want to be? We are nothing but vibrations of consciousness. And our, the spiritual path is simply those vibrations of consciousness. Live in that light. When, when, uh, I'm, because I'm talking so much about death, when one of my friends was also dying, and uh, she asked Swamiji, what should I pray for? And it, she was, it, was, it was partly her case was very serious. Um, you know, should I pray to be well? Should I pray not to be well? Should, what should I pray for? He said, pray to be in the light. <coughs> Which is just a magnificent answer, because that's what she did after that. Didn't matter whether she was sick or well, whether she was living or dying, she just wanted to be in the light. And I realized when I meditated on that, wow, that's what we should all be praying, shouldn't we? We just want to pray to be in the light. So I'm having an altercation with someone, or I'm um, having a job that I have to do, or I'm riding in the endless traffic here, whatever it might be. I just want to pray to be in the light. Because if I can hold that, then that's everything that will come into me will be on that vibration. One more, one more thought here, and then I'll I'll close. Um, I, I don't remember what prompted this comment from Swamiji, but it was a very interesting one. He said, "Master often corrected us. You know, he often had to tell us that something needed to be different." He said, "But no matter what Master said to us, he said, he always we always felt encouraged by what he said, even if his correction of us." was dramatic or even serious. He said, we always felt encouraged, like we had hope for what we were doing. And uh, he said, whenever you feel discouraged, he said, know that Satan is speaking to you. And And that was a very interesting template that I've used ever since that, ever since he I heard him say that. Because sometimes we think that we're being conscientious because we're being really hard on ourselves and we're getting really discouraged. Whenever you feel discouraged, Satan has a hold of you. Because whenever Master corrected us, we always feel encouraged by it. I was in Assisi uh, last year and uh, I was giving a satsang and someone asked what the meaning of Asha is, which you all know, it means hope. They didn't know, so I said that. 
And then a little while later, somebody, I, there, were, there were some written questions. And somebody had written the question, if you could sum up what you've gained on the, what the spiritual path means to you in one word, what would that be? And I thought, oh, that's an interesting question. I sat there and thought about it. I said, Asha. I mean, it was a coincidence that it's my name. Not a coincidence, because Swami gave me the name. But I actually, it's the first time I had put that together. Because what the spiritual path gives you is hope. So at any point where you're beginning to lose that hope, what you have to say to yourself is, this is not the spiritual path. Because the spiritual path is hope. I have a a, a cute way of saying it. If this is not the happy ending of my story, it is not the ending of my story. (laughs) Because it's going to go on and all of the difficulties will resolve into bliss and the story will be all that more magnificent because when we finally get there. So that's a vibration in the universe, is a vibration of hope. And that's how the masters see us. They don't have any doubt that we can do it. They don't have, even more, they don't have any doubt that we will do it. And here's, here's one more interesting idea. I was sharing this with a smaller group. An avatar is, an in, is, is a jiva just like us. You know, that's the power of the avatar, is that he's just like us. He's just finished the job that we're doing. So this means when you take Master, who said he remembered all the way back to being a diamond, that means that the entire distance from being a diamond to being an avatar, Paramahansa Yogananda walked it. Jesus Christ walked it. Krishna walked it. Rama walked it. Every one of them walked it. Which meant at some time in that span, whatever vibration of consciousness we're on, they were on it. So when you pray to Master, you know, I'm such a mess, help me with this, whatever it might be, it's not merely that he has compassion for it. He's been there. He's done that. You know, that was, Swami never liked slang, but he liked that one. Been there, done that. He liked that one. He would say it. Whenever, whenever Swami would use slang, this was the funniest thing. He rarely used it. You would realize that the vibration of slang is not uplifting because it would be so... In such contrast to his consciousness, I remember once he he described a situation is very very difficult. He said, "I just you know, in fact, I would call it and then and then he paused the pits." He said like that. <laughs> it was just it was hilarious because coming from him, that phrase it just became so ludicrous, and you of course never wanted to use it again. The other thing, just as funny, was whenever, whenever Swami had a T-shirt that he wore to sleep in because it was very soft cotton, and it had some kind of a logo on it. And every once in a while, you'd see him just walking around. I would see him walking around, and he would walk around with this logo. It was like for a restaurant, actually a restaurant that had belonged to a friend. And But the contrast, just like him committing his entire aura to this logo... Once again, it was just so ludicrous. I mean, I know many of you wear things with logos on them, but it also made me realize that one should just be careful, you know, about what one is putting forward at all times because it was, you know, such a contrast to this. Now, I was talking about hope and I was talking about positive thinking and 
I was saying something else that was more useful than that. Well, been there, been there, done that. That was it. But it's actually really something to contemplate, serious to contemplate. You cannot be having an experience that Master did not have. It's behind him. So when he sees us having this experience, he's not shocked. <coughs> See, we're shocked. He's not shocked. Of course you're having this experience because it's the vibration you're on. And in order to get through it, this is the experience you have. One of the stories in the Miracles and Answered Prayers book is, uh, it starts, you might think being a drug addict and a disciple of Master are incompatible, but I'm here to say they're not. And he, then he went on to say, there are many things that Master said, and you won't be surprised that my favorite was, if you're going to do it anyway, take God with you. <laughs> and so as a consequence, he said, I took Master to a lot of places. I don't think he would have gone on his own. <laughs> But as a consequence, he came through it without, well, I w- the word I would use is without shame. And so when he actually finally became free of that unfortunate inclination, all he, he was free of it because he had never separated himself from God and Guru. I just think how important that is because it's a vibration we have to go through. These are the thoughts that you need to Meditate on before you're in crisis. So they become such a deep part of who you are that when the crisis comes, your roots are deeper. You can't just coast while it's easy and then imagine that you'll be strong when it's not. You have to, it has to be a matter of life or death before it is a matter of life or death. Because then when it is, you suffer, you weep, you huddle in a drawer, huddle in your bed, uh, someone, one of my friends said to me so beautifully, you can try to lay down and die, but it's not that easy. <laughs> and as she put it, you know, after a while you feel a little physically uncomfortable and you get hungry. <laughs> so even if you lie down and die, try to die for a while, even if you actually die. There's a, there's a story of, a, it's from Adi Shankaracharya, I believe, and this is a story that is reported to be true, that there was a disciple of Shankaracharya's who was very anxious and very nervous and always presenting possibilities. And she, and she was talking to the guru one day, and she said, well, so-and-so, but what happens if I die? And apparently he said to her, die. And she did. She just died, just like that. Well, then die then. <laughs> now, that's the way the story is usually told, but of course, he would have been with her on the other side. And you know, and so I, I, what I think of is him saying to her, "So, how did that work for you?" you know? <laughs> it's like they just go through it with us. It doesn't really make any difference if we just don't separate ourselves from them. They won't separate our, themselves from us. If we persevere to the end, they'll always be with us. All right. God bless you.